0: Hello and welcome to Sobel Sessions. Very excited to have Susan Bassfield on today. Susan, how are you doing?
1: I'm really good, Donny. Um, here in Wellington, New Zealand, it's a it's a bit of a rainy spring day, but it's going to be summer soon. So yeah, looking forward to spending more time outside. And uh, yeah, really, uh, it's it's great because in New Zealand, it January is our kind of summer vacation time. So I've been hanging out for that. I'm really good.
0: That's awesome. I I realize we've known each other now for a few years. uh, But I actually don't even know if I know how you ended up in the future of workspace, like what your journey into it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'll try to make it as concise as I can. So uh, I started out in tech at the, basically at the very beginning, I was, um, had my, got my first job for a, tech company when I was a a senior in high school and it was a small startup and I worked there for eight years while I put myself through university uh, doing communications but it was great because I was able to learn everything about business from working in that company and I ended up being the uh, person that sold most IBM green screens west of the Mississippi for like three years running so that kind of puts a little bit of a date on where and how I got into tech. Uh, I emigrated to uh, the UK in the mid-1990s and uh, had my first experiences with big multinationals. I worked uh, for a company called Tektronix and then later for IBM and started getting that understanding of what large, unwieldy multinationals were like and found myself getting frustrated because um, as somebody used to being at the at the middle of where change could happen, I was making suggestions that were, that I could see from, you know, very uh, quick, easy tweaks to the product or to our marketing strategy that I knew would make a big difference. And uh, the answers that I got were, no, nah, just just hang back. It's, it's too hard to move the system. So just, you know, just check out and uh, make your target and, and everything's good. And I found that uh, really frustrating. And so when I had the opportunity to rejoin a startup who actually had been one of my clients at the start of the first dot-com boom, I really um, jumped on that. So that was an organization uh, called Bystorm, which was uh, the first wave of what became SaaS. It used to be called ASP application service provision and also managed internet security so that was really great to be in an organization that was building from the ground up and that was my real first taste of I think what has ended up being my um, kind of like my grounding for the future of work the organization was, equally interested in building our market and our products, as we were in building the leadership capacity of everybody in the organization. When you're in a market making or market building posture, uh, you know, words like innovation are maybe a little bit overused, but we were actually inventing as we were going, like I said, not just the product, but how we're engaging with customers, how we are solving problems. Uh, the, uh, COO had a really interesting background. He had read philosophy at Oxford and also done his MBA at Harvard. And we had a full-time organizational psychologist. And that kind of set me up for the next 15 years after emigrating to New Zealand, um, which was trying to find and repeat that really um, interesting developmental experience uh, a rich developmental experience I'd had um, at a company that grew from, you know, 50 to 500 in three years and uh, ended up selling for, you know, an eight-figure, eight-figure number to uh, EDS and then Hewlett Packard. So, had, a, had some diversions here in New Zealand. Uh, I ran A.J. Hackett, who is the founder of Bungee Jumping. I ran his international enterprise for a few years. Um, I got back into tech more specifically into telco and senior leadership positions with the big telcos here in New Zealand. And the more that went on, the more I, fa- I found that m- I wasn't able to impact the organization even from what eventually ended up being senior leadership, senior leadership positions. Like I could have an impact on the silo that I had direct, control over and create really good fun and um yeah like nurturing relationships with the people that were under my direct uh influence and, and hence our customers but when it came to bumping up, up against intransigent organizations that had no will to change I found myself getting more and more disillusioned until finally I had enough. Um, and that must have been 2014. Uh, and I can remember very vividly having, uh, lunch with somebody that I'd met just randomly in Auckland who was in the progressive HR space. And as we're finishing up our, our lunch, she said, oh, and you, you must've read La Lou. And I said, La who? And yeah. yeah. So then I picked up inventing Organizations and that kind of started me on a completely different trajectory, which, um, is kind of where we bumped into each other in, I guess it must've been 2018. Um, having built, uh, built an organization uh, based on the practice of what could it be like if we threw out our assumptions about hierarchy and created systems that were built to serve what we're trying to do rather than inheriting systems that no longer serve anybody.
0: Yeah, that's a, uh, I, I feel like a lot of people's journey began with, with re- reading Reinventing Organizations by Lulu did Have you come when people or when people ask you for a definition of the future of work now have you have you been able to come up with a succinct way to explain it?
1: Well I think that I think the words are confusing right because half of the world well probably more than half the world, probably eighty percent of the world when they hear future of work, they think of AI and automation and um people's jobs being replaced by robots right um but I know that our definition of future of work is Looking at how can in 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 a in a in an economy that's becoming increasingly uh, fluid in terms of what people are choosing to do and how people are choosing to express um, their meaningful, significant work um, and enact their livelihoods. There's lots more options now. There's lots more options um, uh, just because of the proliferation of tech. I think that one of the you know, uh, don't like to really, it's really hard to think of succinct benefits from the, from the pandemic, but now people are more and more used to uh, working remotely, communicating remotely, making decisions together in a way that allows us to decentralize, but still focus on getting the work done um, in a way that allows us to build teams based on energy and capability and capacity rather than just geographical location. I think that these two things um, are part of my definition of the future of work, but I think that my real definition of the future of work is how do we examine these systems that we've inherited and, like I said before, no longer serve us and really um, take the responsibility for uh, ensuring that the way that we're working is is as meaningful, uh, developmental, and as financially not only viable but uh enthusiastic as what it is that we produce so that's one of the reasons i get really frustrated with um you know we we've all heard about greenwashing and sustainability and now i'm getting frustrated with organizations that say that purpose is everything well yeah purpose is great but if you're stil- still still treating your people like shit then it doesn't really matter right this like uh this attraction to, you know, and I have to say, you know, I work with a lot of NGOs and the, and the purpose gets overridden, overrides everything. And that for me is no better than serving the stakeholder. We really, really need to, as humans, figure out how we can stay in the complexity soup long enough to determine what is right for our particular needs and stand for that um, and not fall into the old patterns of, just falling back on okay now we've got 10 people so now we have to hire a middle manager and we have to create a pyramid that's bullshit it doesn't serve us and it's certainly not going to serve us into the future
0: so so a lot of good points there uh first that i had was well maybe we need to call this the human future of work as opposed to the the ai robotics future of work even though very interestingly saw that recently walmart actually pulled robots off the stores because they found that humans were just better and more efficient than these robots who were trying to to count products. So, I, I personally think the robot taking over humans is probably uh, it's only working very niche right now. Um, the other the other thing, what you said made me think of is I think we also we want to give this human future work stuff to software to that we because we think it's going to do it for us as opposed to just allowing it to nurture or be something we use to make an organization more human future of work. And then a third piece that maybe we can talk about another time is I have noticed very anecdotally that people who work in nonprofits and NGOs usually have a very horrible experience. Uh, And I I find that kind of interesting that most people or maybe some high performers end up leaving very quickly because the leadership, the management uh, isn't supportive. It isn't a good place to work. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: I mean, for all good reasons, right? they're laser focused on whatever it is that they're doing, whether it's cleaning the plastics out of the ocean or um, or 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 making sure that human's rights initiatives are adhered to, are adhered to and that 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 vision and that mission becomes all consuming to the expense of the people and i'm sure that they're not doing it with that intention but that i think you're right that seems to be what happens so um it's something that i've been chewing on a lot and i think that's why i asked you when we were prepping for this like how provocative do you want me to be because you know having spent five six years in this space now i have seen enough patterns to be able to surface some things that people are going to feel really uncomfortable talking about and seeing, um, so that makes me curious. but I think in your um, in your invitation there, I think where I'd like to start is in the in the middle, which is around how software tools and tools generally can can help us enact um, our own unique version in whatever organization we're in, um, human future of work. And I like to talk about the example of Inspiral. I think that um, I was really um, fortunate enough to to drop myself into Inspiral at that time that I was making the transition from um, uh, big multinationals to working in this um, future of work space. And sort of Inspiral, just for those of you who don't know, is a collective of entrepreneurs who are each working on their individual stuff. So we've got, um, we've got, an ed, we've got a, a dev school, and we've got an accounting firm, and we've got a couple of consultancies, and a design agency, and some um, development agencies. Um, and we are all doing our different things. So Inspiral isn't a business, but it's been a place for us to practice um, these different ways of working together. So, for example, Lumio, which is a decision-making SaaS software that is used by over you know a couple hundred thousand humans around the world today, came out of, and we like to call it the the love child of the Occupy movement and Inspiral, which is, you know, at, in Occupy people sitting around in circles trying to make decisions but seeing the same old uh, habits. Uh, pop up, which is the the person with the most context, having the most influence. Uh, maybe the white guy with the loudest voice getting the most airtime and seeing you know. And I think this goes back to the NGO and the purpose driven stuff. Seeing seeing really good intention around wanting to enact things differently, but using the old models to try to do it and finding the constraints there. So out of uh, out of um, Out of Occupy, there uh, there were a couple people um, from InSpiral that had had known the people and uh, the idea of what how could we create a software that allows that kind of equalization of voices and allows um, anybody to be able to make a proposal and have ownership for what happens afterwards and lean into a process of consent, i.e., as long as it's safe enough to try, rather than going round and round in circles trying to come to some form of consensus. Um, And so that's one example of a tool that followed uh, the function that followed the form. Another uh, one of those examples within Inspiral was co-budget. So there was, as abundance started to enter the system from various contributions, the idea that um, we could run a kind of an internal crowdfunding marketplace. Um, to see which initiatives had uh, the most traction, what people really wanted to fund. So how people could keep control of their own abundance that they'd offered into the system in a way that was generating a little bit of bootstrapping funds for what was happening in the system. And for ages, that was just on a a spreadsheet. And that would stand on a spreadsheet for a couple of years until it actually became an app. So I think that I've got a very strong opinion that Tools might be able to drive a behavior, but for me, behavior is much more sticky if the organization is allowed to uh, understand culturally what their needs are. And then the tool can help that, help make that more efficient, smoother, more scalable. um, And yeah, and and be that persistent record. One of the things I love so much about SOBOL for example, is uh, the ability uh, to articulate roles and accountabilities and commitments and the transparency of it. But I think that if you're saying that you're going to use a tool like that to create that culture, um, it's much more difficult to do it in that order than if you already have the culture and you're using a beautiful tool like Sobel to be able to really lean into that and um, operationalize it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think something we've noticed is we can't tell you if syllable's going to change your org, but we'll help facilitate that change if it's what the organization wants. What um, do you think it's possible for large orgs to make a switch from a hierarchy top-down model to a more flat?
1: Well, my I, and, and the and the hypothesis that I have that it's yet to be disproved is that yes, if the person that's currently sitting on top of the stack not only wants it to happen, but fully participates in it. Um, doesn't just mandate and say, yes, please, this is what I want, but says, yeah, and and this is my part in this, and this is how I'm participating. Think absolutely if that human is, is part of that change and is willing to, um, yeah, do the hard work of, of of taking the time of creating the conditions, I mean, one, one thing that also is a little bit provocative and, and kind of might be a little bit scary to, to, to your listeners is that I won't take on a new client for less than a year. Because in my experience, it takes at least a year for the system to adapt to this new way of, of being. It takes at least a year for the participants in the system to believe that this is real and that it's not just another kind of harebrained scheme based on the book that the founder read last week.
0: Yeah, And I'm sure um, it's, it's even, hard. or and you need the year also to get the people who realize they can't be a part of it. They like the manager title too much. They probably need that time to realize they probably need to leave the organization.
1: Yeah. Either, either that or, or just really lean into the opportunity of wow. Okay. If we're, if we're, cause we said, we said this at the beginning, like the human future of work. If, if, if the elements that we know will never be replaced are those kind of, con- that connective tissue that um, can can help humans make sense of what's going on. I've seen a lot of people with manager titles really um, embrace the opportunity to, uh, you know, build their, I guess, their their career, or their capability and capacity more in that facilitative leadership posture. Um, and I think that that's another thing we were talking earlier about the ubiquity now of remote work, like um, this world needs more facilitative leaders that can, can really help people uh, thrive in these environments. But you're right, yeah. I mean, in any big organization, there's gonna be, I always say between 10, maybe even 20% of the people that are just like, no, nope, this doesn't work for me. I, I'm really focused on my on my resume. I, I can see over here the, the ladder and the steps and where I need to climb and I feel much more comfortable there. Good luck to you, but you know, see you down the road. And that's totally cool too.
0: What about uh, smaller orgs? What, what uh, struggles do you see when they try to keep this model going? I also theorize that startups are fun because they naturally fit this model. There's more of a natural mm-hmm. decentralized flat everybody's doing working as a team to accomplish the goal. Uh, And maybe when they scale up, they lose that. But do you see anything specifically within smaller orgs that makes the keeping or moving to a human future work model difficult?
1: Uh, I mean, I think that you you hit the nail on the head. Like, startups, like, 10 or less, um, by their very nature, have this participatory interdependent element, right? Because... Um, you're building something and everybody can can share the context and like some of these things are naturally happening anyway Uh, I think that where the rubber normally hits the road is like two either two or three years in or when the uh, startup becomes sustainable or when it grows beyond about 15 humans so I think that those those three variables are where kind of the decision point comes in and that's why in the in the work that we've been doing in the in the in the book that i've this the kind of third version of this book that that um myself brent lowe and travis marsh have written um uh the latest version is called lead together that's what we've seen time and time again in organizations that are reaching that point of having to make that decision because they've realized that that i'm going to use the word intimacy is no longer practical or possible um, because they've reached any one of those three milestones and so then the decision that that's when the first decision point comes um it's interesting somebody was asking me the other day if there's a particular industry that is more uh apt to do this and their their hypothesis was that it was tech but in my in my world not necessarily i think only tech from the perspective of i think that uh, the highest percentage or proportion of startups are in the tech space. So that might um, lead to kind of that over, over representation of, uh, of tech in that particular space. But um, certainly I'm working with organizations in from every spectrum, from, from manufacturing, to disability services, to education, to uh, government, to, yeah, kind of everything in between so I'm, i I don't really think that there's a particular um, industry segment that is more apt to um, wanting to explore in this way of working. Uh, I think that the 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 struggles come when yeah, you know, this is kind of the first time I've articulated it, and I'm, I'm thinking about it deeply because it's currently happening with an organization that I've been working with for about three years. Um, and and the reason that this particular organization decided to go down the path is the founder um, uh, was getting ready to retire, and they they really knew with every bone in their every bone in their body that what could be created by this 150 person organization um, from a self organizing self management perspective future of work perspective um, was what was the legacy that sh- that they wanted to leave. And so there's been a great three years of building up to that point, but now she's six months out from leaving, and the <clears throat> the, the the group of um, leaders uh, that are, they call themselves the the service stewards. So even like changing la- the language that would normally be the C suite now to um, uh, service stewards are really it, the rubber is really hitting the road to think about like what about. This human's role still needs to be decentralized, and is that possible? Is that practical? Um, how do we make space in our busy BAU uh, to do the work of creating the organization? Yeah. Oh, what's that? Um, so, how do we how do we make space in our busy in our busy roles to actually hold oh. the organization? If there's not one boss that's responsible for doing that. So I think that that becomes uh, the biggest critical, uh, I guess, inflection point a couple of years in, uh, which is that now the the system is humming with this new, um, uh, less hierarchical organizing model, uh, but what's missing from that? And is it still the stuff that traditionally sat, with the founder, with the source, with that person who is concentrated on, yeah, what the future brings. I'm not sure sure that was really eloquent, but that's, yeah, one of the things that I can think of. Was there something else on your mind that you've seen around uh, orgs transitioning and, and, and running into roadblocks?
0: I think I'm with you in that the founder really needs to be okay with not Making all the decisions or feel like he or she needs to uh, manage people necessarily, but enjoy the freedom of giving people responsibility and asking for feedback and mentorship but i also I'm also think I'm just stunned by the fact that people say, oh startups are so much more fun than large large orgs, but they don't really articulate why or they you know they say the classical well there's bureaucracy in bigger companies, but what's actually behind all of them? All the things they don't enjoy, it's slower moving. Okay, but why is it slower moving? Um, People complaining. Uh, I was just talking to somebody, actually, who works for a big, uh, semi-big pharmaceutical company in uh, Boston doing employee experience. So I was like, oh, tell me more about that. Is it under the people ops? Yes, it is. What's your, what's your role? Well, we're, you know, there's hundreds of pharma companies in the Boston area. So we want to make sure their experience is great. So they stay. And I was like, Oh, and very interesting. So what levers do you have to pull to make that happen? And she, you know, talked about the normal stuff. And then she said, okay, I have to go because I have to prepare. I'm very anxious about my uh, performance review and I have to get prepared for it. And I said, well, don't you think, that maybe one of the levers you should pull is getting rid of this thing that makes everybody anxious and miserable and constantly competing with their coworkers. Like, isn't that the obvious thing you should do? But it the thought hadn't even, hadn't even crossed her mind because I think there's something so welded in that if you wanna run a business, there are certain things you have to do, the McKinsey post-World War II style. And that kind of really like blew my mind that I think a lot of it just also comes down to, there's just, it's almost like, physics and how you run an organization there's laws you can't break uh even though that's very silly so that's that's just something that I found recently that was pretty interesting
1: and and absolutely and, and like I'm going to be super provocative here and those systems are designed to cause pain they're designed right. to create trauma right if you've been in any large organization through a re- reorg or restructure right you you n- n- you know I've worked for enough big organizations that you know McKinsey or PWC or or or, or you know Booze comes in and you can you kind you kind of know that it's happening because you see like the 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 leadership team spending more time in that big conference room with these people that are arriving through reception that you know work for these big organizations. So at that moment, like your anxiety starts to build, right? And then, after a couple of months, there'll be a proclamation saying uh, we we are entering a consultation period for a restructure, and we we'd love to hear what you think right and then uh, and then a couple of months later, okay, so thank you for your feedback um, and this is the new structure. everybody needs to reapply for their roles, and um, you know this is this is For anybody to say, suck it up and live with it, that's fine, but say that because what you're doing is actually creating anxiety, trauma, pain, hurt for the people that work for you. And sure, people suck it up and get over it after they've gone home and not slept for two weeks because they don't freaking know if reapplying for their job really means reapplying for their job or if this is a chance to get rid of me because we don't get rid of people other than when we're doing reorgs and reorg that happens every 3 years is a chance to get rid of the people that we should have performance managed out anyway and then and then you get all excited because you get to come into the room and here's the here's the new mission and vision statement and the new branding and the new tagline and yeah this is something we all can get get, get behind and you might feel good about that for a year or two until you see Oh gosh, who are those people in suits? Hmm. Okay, the exec is spending an awful lot of time in that room again, and the cycle starts over and over and over again. And for anybody to say that that is healthy, life-giving, something that is motivating, is absolute, complete bullshit. It is designed to cause pain, fear, trauma, and that, and that, and that impacts everything. That impacts our work that impacts our sleep, that impacts our relationships, that, our, that impacts our ability to do our best work, that impacts our ability to innovate, but nobody ever questions it.
0: I think we should crowdfund a documentary showing how McKinsey's devastated the world economy and ruined people's lives and what people hate about modern work is due to them, even though their consultants and partners just makes tons of money. Because I, I don't think people realize the power some of these big management consulting firms have and the way they make everybody's lives miserable for an extra buck, whether that's for the execs or the shareholders or for themselves. Um, So I think that we need to talk about this more and get this more into the purview of the world. And
1: and the organizations are complicit because they let it happen, right? But we choose not to see it. I'm reading this amazing book um, at the minute called Willful Blindness by a woman called Margaret Heffernan which really deep dives into um, all of the areas of our life and all of the inbuilt, inbuilt cognitive bias-focused reasons that we choose not to see things. And for me, maybe you asked a question earlier, how, how would I articulate the future of work? Future of work is a place where we are unflinchingly naming what is, because when we unflinchingly name what is, we can create options. And make choices but as long as we continue to be willfully blind about everything like you said from from performance reviews to restructures to any number of these things things are just going to persist
0: i every time i read about a restructure at a big company now i i roll my eyes and sarcastically say to myself oh well that's gonna fix everything that's <laughs> they found that's gonna that's the uh, solves all their wounds. Just do a re reorg, yeah. a restructure.
1: And I mean, that's the other. That's the other um, un uh, unchallenged. Well, that hypothesis. Another hypothesis of mine that I've never had a had a. Um, I felt like it had been has been disproven. So the one about earlier about uh, the founder, or the person that's currently on top, needing to participate in any sort of true transformation. The other one is: Has there ever been a system? <laughs> picked up from one organization um, and plopped down on another that has actually worked? And the answer is no, it doesn't work that way. Human organizing systems are complex and this this incessant uh, need, this incessant, I'm gonna use the words, rational masculine need to put everything in a box, to codify it, to make it a best practice, just completely limits the potential of what's possible um, in the complex soup of human organizing, and the sooner that we can feel comfortable and happy being in a space where we don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but keeping our eyes open, watching for patterns, and 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 working with that mindset, the happier everybody's going to be, and the more successful businesses are going to be because we're not perpetually putting ourselves through these cycles that are devastating our well-being devastating our ability to uh as you said keep and hold on to great people who have got heaps to offer the organization and and limit our ability as humans to actually make the workplace a place where we can do our ongoing development and be be human
0: and there's something something else I want to add to that is the thing i really enjoy about this movement is it's role based and accountability based it's, so it's you're actually going to be held responsible for the things you do or don't do. Whereas at least what I've seen in the corporate world is you hire McKinsey so you can blame them if things go wrong and you'll never get fired. And then the other thing is, I think we want to see, we want to hold people accountable for good work, but also if they're, you know, I, we see very well-paid executives who probably don't add that much value and they don't get held accountable for their actions Um, or they break the laws, but they're not, they're not prosecuted. So there's something about this accountability where it goes both ways. It's humanistic for, for when you're doing good work, but also it it provides some sort of accountability for the organization as a whole. uh, Because the team, I think, like you said at the beginning, the team's got to succeed. It's got to be a viable business. So I, I think it's like both sides of that. That coin humanistic also maybe i've been struggling with this it's like how what's the humanistic side of holding people accountable for bad work i haven't i don't know if you have any thoughts on that
1: i mean it's humanistic and rigorous i um i don't know if you know doug kirkpatrick from morningstar self-management institute he's one of he's one of my mentors and you know he makes it he makes always makes it sound so simple like morningstar is the biggest tomato processing um, facility facilities on the planet and in 25 years, there's never been one human boss, right? And they, for many, many years, ran their whole operation off of two principles. Um, the first one being, uh, nobody can coerce anybody into doing anything. And the second is, you, make, you keep the commitments you make. And those two principles have kind of enabled this, you know, now almost multi-generational self-organizing factory to to really flourish in a way that people are held to account because they are the, the onus is on them to make the commitments about what they're going to be responsible for it's not like me saying so donnie i'm hiring you to do this this and this these are your kpis it's donnie coming to me to say right my, my KPIs or my targets or my objectives for uh, this month or this. I want to be held accountable to this by these, these individuals. These are the questions I want them to ask me. And at the end of every two months, we're gonna do a collective uh, red, orange, green assessment on how I'm going. And if anything is not green, we're gonna put in an action plan to see how we can move it to green, right? so these, these are the same things that organizations try to compel people to do and try to coerce people to doing, but if it's coming from us as individuals and us taking responsibility for like really everybody wants to feel good about their work, everybody wants to contribute to 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 um, to what the organization is trying to do, but the more that we can that we can become comfortable both standing and making commitments, knowing how to ask for help, knowing. Knowing how, uh, being very clear, like I said, on what happens. So we, I meet with my accountability partners every month. Every two months, we do this assessment. If there's anything not in the green, we make a plan together, and we meet again next month. Right? It's, it's. I think that one of the one of the frustrating things about you know the the initial reaction to self-management. Oh, there's no bosses, so anybody can do whatever they want. It's the exact opposite of that. There needs to be rigorous scaffolding in there that holds us in these new practices that can allow us to express our autonomy, and autonomy is such a big part of this, in a way that is connected to the outcomes of the organization and in a way that connects us to each other.
0: Absolutely, I, I, I realize these podcasts should be more provocative because there's a lot of good stuff we all should be fired up about wanting to change. Uh, so I think, I, I think um, I think you've helped me set a new direction for the, for the podcast. Uh, And I'm, I have no doubt we'll be talking again uh, soon about many of these, many of these topics. Um, Any, any final thoughts now? I know lead together. It's out.
1: Yeah. So I've been really excited about that. Um, Lead together the bold, brave, intentional path to scaling your business. Uh, It's, um, it's 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 really interesting, and I feel like because we've talked to and got examples from over sixty different organizations, literally all all around the world. At least two or three or four examples in each chapter. I feel like this starts to become a little bit of a little bit of a guidebook, not a roadmap, but a guidebook um, for organizations that are interested in. I guess, first of all, I'm hoping that people are gonna get this book and look at the table of the contents and kind of go, oh my God, I never realized. But also to be able to understand what what might be um, in the the line of sight right now. Maybe it's onboarding, maybe it's uh, uh, putting in some new routines and rituals, maybe it's something about how do we transform conflict, maybe it's something about how do we make decisions together. Um, to be able to pick up the pick pick up this book and have some examples of what coming full circle to what Lalu saw in those organizations that were um, approaching work differently, some real ex- real how-to examples, things you can try, experiments you can start. Um, so I'm super proud of of it from that perspective. That um, really really grounded and hopefully also inspirational but practical
0: awesome well susan always great to chat and i look forward to doing this again
1: thanks donnie it's always a pleasure and um such a big supporter of sobel um, use it and refer it whenever we can and just really excited to see how this compendium of tools that can help organizations um, be more transparent, be more accountable to one another, um, and at the same time as kind of seeing our connections in a way that looks different from a traditional org chart or uh, pyramid is really essential. So thanks for doing what you do um, with Sobold.
0: Thank you.